0: Section 38 of The Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Plain Speaker. OPINIONS ON BOOKS, MEN, AND THINGS by William Hazlitt Section 38 On Old English Writers and Speakers Part 2 Learning is its own exceeding great reward, and at the period of which we speak it bore other fruits, not unworthy of it. Genius when not smothered and kept down by learning, blazed out triumphantly over it, and the fancy often rose to a height proportioned to the depth to which the understanding had struck its roots. After the first emancipation of the mind, from the trammels of papal ignorance and superstition, people seemed to be in a state of breathless wonder at the new light that was suffered to break in upon them. They were startled as, at the birth of nature from the unapparent deep, they seized on all objects that rose in view with a firm and eager grasp, in order to be sure whether they were imposed upon or not. The mind of man, pawing to get free from custom and prejudice, struggled and plunged, and like fabled Pegasus, opened at each spring a new source of truth images were piled on heaps as well as opinions and facts the ample materials for poetry and prose to which the bold hand of enthusiasm applied its torch and kindled it into a flame the accumulation of past records seemed to form the framework of their prose as the observation of external objects did of their poetry whose body nature was and man the soul Among poets they have to boast such names, for instance, as Shakespeare, Spencer, Beaumont and Fletcher, Marlowe, Webster, Decker, and soon after, Milton. Among prose-writers, Selden, Bacon, Jeremy Taylor, Baxter, and Sir Thomas Brown. For patriots they have such men as Pym, Hampden, Sidney, and for a witness of their zeal and piety. They have Fox's Book of Martyrs, instead of which we have Mr. Southey's Book of the Church, and a whole host of renegades. Perhaps Jeremy Taylor, and also Beaumont and Fletcher, may be mentioned as rather exceptions to the gravity and severity I have spoken of, as characteristic of our earlier literature. It is true they are florid and voluptuous in their style, but they still keep their state apart, and there is an eloquence of the heart about them, which seems to gush from the pure well of English undefiled, the one treats of sacred things with a vividness and fervour as if he had a revelation of them. The others speak of human interests, with a tenderness as if man's nature were divine. Jeremy Taylor's pen seems to have been guided by the very spirit of joy and youth, but yet with a sense of what was due to the reverence of age, and tears of pious awe that feared to have offended. Beaumont and Fletcher's love scenes are like the meeting of hearts in Elysium. Let any one have dwelt on any object with the greatest fondness, let him have cherished the feeling to the utmost height, and have it put to the test in the most trying circumstances and he will find it described to the life in beaumont and fletcher our modern dramatists with one exception appeal not to nature or the heart but to the readers of modern poetry words and paper each couleur de rose are the two requisites of a fashionable style but the glossy splendour the voluptuous glow of the obsolete old-fashioned writers just mentioned has nothing artificial nothing meretricious in it. It is the luxuriance of natural feeling and fancy. I should as soon think of accusing the summer rose of vanity for unfolding its leaves to the dawn, or the hawthorn that puts forth its blossoms in the genial warmth of spring, of affecting to be fine. We have heard a good deal of the pulpit eloquence of Bossuet and other celebrated preachers of the time of Fenelon, but I doubt much whether all of them together could produce any number of passages to match the best of those in the holy living and dying, or even Baxter's severe but thrilling denunciations of the insignificance and nothingness of life, and the certainty of a judgment to come. There is a fine portrait of this last-named powerful controversialist, with his high forehead and black velvet cap, in Calamere's Nonconformist Memorial, containing an account of the two thousand ejected ministers at the restoration of charles the second this was a proud list for old england and the account of their lives their zeal their eloquence and sufferings for conscience sake is one of the most interesting chapters in the history of the human mind how high it can soar in faith how nobly it can arm itself with resolution and fortitude how far it can surpass itself "'in cruelty and fraud. "'How incapable it seems to be of good, "'except as it is urged on "'by the contention with evil. "'The retired and inflexible descendants "'of the two thousand ejected ministers "'and their adherents "'are gone with the spirit of persecution "'that gave a soul and body to them. "'And with them, I am afraid, "'the spirit of liberty, "'of manly independence, "'and of inward self-respect.' is nearly extinguished in England. There appears to be no natural necessity for evil, but there is a perfect indifference to good without it. One thing exists and has a value set upon it, only as it has a foil in some other. Learning is set off by ignorance, liberty by slavery, refinement by barbarism. The cultivation and attainment of any art or excellence is followed by its neglect and decay, and even religion owes its zest to the spirit of contradiction, for it flourishes most from persecution and hostile factions. Mr. Irvine speaks of the great superiority of religion over every other motive, since it enabled its professors to endure having hot molten lead poured down their throats. He forgets that it was religion that poured it down their throats, and that this principle, mixed with the frailty of human passion, has often been as ready to inflict as to endure. I could make the world good, wise, happy, to-morrow, if, when made, it would be contented to remain so, without the alloy of mischief, misery, and absurdity. That is, if every possession did not require the principle of contrast, contradiction, and excess, to enliven and set it off, and keep it at a safe distance from sameness, and insipidity. The different styles of art and schools of learning vary and fluctuate on this principle. After the restoration of Charles, the grave, enthusiastic, puritanical, prick-eared style became quite exploded, and a gay and piquant style, the reflection of courtly conversation and polished manners, and borrowed from the French, came into fashion and lasted till the Revolution. Some examples of the same thing were given, in the time of Charles I, by Sir J. Suckling and others, but they were eclipsed and overlaid by the prevalence and splendour of the opposite examples. It was at its height, however, in the reign of the restored monarch, and in the witty and licentious writings of Wycherley, Congreve, Rochester, and Waller. Milton alone stood out as a partisan of the old Elizabethan school. Out of compliment, I suppose, to the houses of Orange and Hanover, we sobered down, after the Revolution, into a strain of greater demureness, and into a Dutch and German fidelity of imitation of domestic manners and individual character, as in the periodical essayists, and in the works of Fielding and Hogarth, Yet, if the two named painters of manners are not English, who are so? I cannot give up my partiality to them for the fag end of a theory. They have this mark of genuine English intellect, that they constantly combine truth of external observation with strength of internal meaning. The Dutch are patient observers of nature, but want character and feeling. The French, as far as we have imitated them, aim only at the pleasing, and glance over the surfaces of words and things. Thus has our literature descended, according to the foregoing scale, from the tone of the pulpit, to that of the court or drawing-room, from the drawing-room into the parlour, and from thence, if some critics say true, into the kitchen and alehouse. It may do even worse than that, French literature has undergone great changes in like manner, and was supposed to be at its height in the time of Louis Fourteenth. We sympathise less, however, with the pompous and set speeches in the tragedies of Racine and Corneille, or in the serious comedies of Molière, than we do with the grotesque farces of the latter, with the exaggerated descriptions and humour of Rabelais, whose wit was a madness, a drunkenness, or with the accomplished humanity, the easy style, and gentlemanly and scholar-like sense, of Montaigne. But these we consider as in a great measure English, or as what the old French character inclined to, before it was corrupted by courts and academies of criticism. The exquisite graces of La Fontaine, the indifferent sarcastic tone of Voltaire and Lesage, who make light of everything, and who produce their greatest effects, with the most imperceptible and rapid touches, we give wholly to the constitutional genius of the French, and despair of imitating. Perhaps in all this we proceed by guesswork at best. Nations, particularly rival nations, are bad judges of one another's literature or physiognomy. The French certainly do not understand us. It is most probable we do not understand them, "'How slowly great works, great names, "'make their way across the Channel! Monsieur Tracey's ideology "'has not yet been heard of amongst us, "'and a Frenchman who asks if he have read it "'almost subjects himself to the suspicion "'of being the author. "'They have also their little sects "'and parties in literature, "'and though they do not nickname and vilify their rivals, "'as is done with us, "'thanks to the national politeness.' Yet, if you do not belong to the prevailing party, they very civilly suppress all mention of you, your name is not noticed in the journals, nor your work inquired for at the shops. Those who explain everything by final causes, that is, who deduce causes from effects, might avail themselves of their privilege on this occasion. There must be some checks to the excessive increase of literature, as of population, or we should be overwhelmed by it, and they are happily found in the envy, dullness, prejudices, and vanity of mankind. While we think we are weighing the merits of an author, we are indulging our own national pride, indolence, or ill-humour, by laughing at what we do not understand, or condemning what thoughts are inclinations. The French reduce all philosophy to a set of agreeable sensations. The Germans reduce the commonest things, to an abstruse metaphysics the one are a mystical the other a superficial people both proceed by the severest logic but the real guide to their conclusions is the proportion of phlegm or mercury in their dispositions when we appeal to a man's reason against his inclinations we speak a language without meaning and which he will not understand Different nations have favourite modes of feeling, and of accounting for things to please themselves, and fall in with their ordinary habits. And our different systems of philosophy, literature, and art meet, contend, and repel one another, on the confines of opinion, because their elements will not amalgamate with our several humours, and all the while we fancy we settle the question, by an abstract exercise of reason, and by laying down some refined and exclusive standard of taste. There is no great harm in this delusion, nor can there be much in seeing through it, for we shall still go on just as we did before. End of section 38